You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ukraine takes down two bot farms, pushing panic. Thoughts on hybrid warfare. Russia and China explain how we ought to see the political and online worlds. Digital frame-ups are reported in India. Lazarus fishes with bogus job offers. Espionage services look for journalist sources. David DeFore from WebRoot ponders the metaverse. Our guest is Amanda Fennell, host of the Security Sandbox podcast. And public and private sector warnings about ransomware. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 10th, 2022. The Ukrainian SBU Security Service announced its liquidation of two bot farms in the Ukrainian city of Lviv which the SBU says were operating under Russian direction. Three arrests were made. Two of the suspects are accused of lending their apartments to bot farming. The third maintained the equipment and software. The two farms controlled some 18,000 bots and were largely engaged in disruptive influence operations, spreading rumors of bombings and the placement of mines in critical infrastructure. The record describes the bot farm's goal as spreading panic. The bomb threats may be connected to a wave of such threats Euromaidan reported near the end of January. The SBU at that time characterized the campaign as a preparatory operation in a Russian hybrid war. An essay in The New Atlanticist argues that adversaries, Russia in particular, has the advantage over the U.S. with respect to hybrid warfare— Russian hybrid warfare isn't confined to the current situation in Ukraine, and the essay in fact emphasizes other earlier operations as varied as election influence and nerve agent assassination attempts. The essay sees five areas where the U.S. needs to improve its capabilities, doctrine, and policies. They include timely attribution and its timely public release, Pain points, the clear-eyed assessment of what the adversaries value and how those values may be vulnerable. Tempo and sequencing, U.S. responses must be effective and close enough in time to the original offense to be correctly viewed as retaliatory. Strategic coordination, that's in the first instance internal coordination with national strategy. The U.S. government has had some difficulty staying on message. And finally, effects-based messaging, The goal is to shape the adversary's behavior, and the messaging in both words and action should be designed to do so in a way consistent with overall strategy. 
The Olympic Games meeting between Presidents Putin and Xi resulted in a long communique, a joint statement of the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China on the international relations entering a new era and the global sustainable development. While it's easy to read too much into the meeting, an essay in Foreign Policy argues it's worth reading the joint statement as a summary of the worldview that Russia's government would advance. They note that Beijing's account of the session has been more muted than Moscow's. It's especially relevant in its implicit framing of Russia's ambitions with respect to Ukraine. Fundamentally, Russia sees the dispute with NATO and Ukraine as an internal Russian matter. As the joint statement puts it, quote, The sides reaffirm their strong mutual support for the protection of their core interests, state sovereignty and territorial integrity, and oppose interference by external forces in their internal affairs. Russia and China stand against attempts by external forces to undermine security and stability in their common adjacent regions, intend to counter interference by outside forces in the internal affairs of sovereign countries under any pretext, oppose color revolutions, and will increase cooperation in the aforementioned areas. End quote. Note the mention of common adjacent areas, which seems to suggest that a declared sphere of influence should be regarded as a matter of state sovereignty, and not something other nations may legitimately meddle with. That is, a matter of big state sovereignty, a matter for what used to be called great powers. Looking ahead to other long-running conflicts, the joint statement includes a by-the-way warning about Taiwan, quote, The Russian side reaffirms its support for the One China principle, confirms that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China, and opposes any forms of independence of Taiwan. The villain is NATO, frozen in its Cold War mindset, and led by an America that's interested in replicating the malign NATO model in Asia and the Pacific, with an assist from the UK and Australia. Respect for sovereignty is also cited as a core principle with respect to Internet governance and information security. The diplomatic heavy lifting is bucked up to the United Nations. There are some routine avowals about supporting an international convention that would address cybercrime, and this matter is also bucked up to the UN. And finally, Internet governance is to be internationalized in a way that establishes national control over information as a fundamental principle. Governments will decide what transits the web in their countries. Let every country erect its own great firewall, or at least let Moscow and Beijing do so. Sentinel Labs describes a long-running operation by an APT it calls Modified Elephant. The group has been active since 2012 at least, and its targets have for the most part been located in India, It's been engaging in apparent frame-ups. Quote, Modified Elephant is responsible for targeting attacks on human rights activists, human rights defenders, academics, and lawyers across India with the objective of planting incriminating digital evidence. End quote. The group uses commercially available remote-access Trojans and so may have connections with the commercial surveillance or lawful intercept industry, Modified Elephant's preferred method of attack is the familiar spearfishing campaign, with the payloads usually carried in malicious Microsoft Office files. The researchers are cautious about attribution, but they do say that Modified Elephant activity aligns sharply with Indian state interests, 
and that there is an observable correlation between modified elephant attacks and the arrests of individuals in controversial politically charged cases. North Korea's Lazarus Group continues its tiresome practice of fishing for victims with bogus job offers imputed to major defense and aerospace companies. Northrop Grumman and BAE have been impersonated in the past. More recently, ZDNet reports, it's been Lockheed Martin. Researchers at Qualys, who've tracked the activity, are calling this particular campaign Lulzerous for its use of lulbins, that is, living off the land binaries. The fishbait is familiar, but this incident shows some evolution of capability on behalf of the Lazarus Group. As Qualys puts in its conclusion of their report, quote, Lazarus continues to evolve its capabilities by utilizing lesser-known shellcode execution techniques and incorporating various lulbins as part of its campaign. Qualys will continue to monitor for other similar fishing lures related to Lazarus. End quote. What were the Chinese state actors after in their compromise of News Corp? Sources, apparently, and CPO Magazine reports that those state actors took a particular interest in Wall Street Journal reporters. The attribution of the cyber espionage to China remains tentative, a best guess on the basis of the available evidence. The interest in sources has an obvious motivation. An authoritarian government would regard talking to the media, especially the foreign media, as first cousin to espionage. A joint advisory by Australian, British, and U.S. authorities outlines the current state of the ransomware threat. They see more underworld cooperation, especially ransomware-as-a-service operations and 24-7 help centers that expedite ransom payment and restoration of encrypted systems or data, a greater focus on the cloud and more software supply chain attacks. They also say that double extortion remains common, the Australian Cybersecurity Center in particular is observing this, and that they're beginning to see more threat actors using triple extortion. In triple extortion, the threat actor does three things. It publicly releases sensitive information, it disrupts the victim's internet access, and it tells the victim's partners, shareholders, or suppliers about the incident. The ransomware operators are also going after managed service providers and industrial systems, And there's an interesting trend in timing. More ransomware approaches are being made on weekends and holidays when organizations are presumed to have relaxed, if not actually their vigilance, at least the level of security support they make available to their people. There's also a private sector advisory on ransomware out today. The National Cybersecurity Alliance and the PCI Security Standards Council warn that such extortion is on the rise and they offer some advice on best practices organizations should follow. Train your people, keep your systems up to date and secure, monitor your networks, and back everything up. Sound advice, all. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. 
Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I am pleased to welcome to the CyberWire podcast, Amanda Fennell. She is the host of the Security Sandbox podcast, which is joining the CyberWire network of podcasts. Amanda, welcome to the CyberWire. Thanks for having me. Excited. Well, let's uh, get started uh, by uh, learning a little bit about uh, your podcast and and you as well. Let's start out with the show here. What are you uh, setting out to do here with Security Sandbox? Well, I think this began because there are a lot of security podcasts out there. And uh, I I guess I wasn't listening to a lot of them. And I started to wonder why was I not listening? And I I think there was a bit of like, okay, I think I've heard this particular topic before this way. And that's the thing in security. A lot of us have the same perspective because we've all been doing the same thing a long time. And so I was thinking about bringing in different perspectives to kind of throw into the mix. And that was the creation of season one where we kind of put this creativity and curiosity from other areas that you're enjoying or you're passionate about, like archaeology, and you bring that into how could we deploy some of these same concepts into cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, looking through and listening to some of the episodes from your first season there, uh, it seems to me like you're really focusing on the human side of things, uh, people bringing a bit of themselves to this work. You know, it's true, and... For as much as I love the tech, the tech is always easy to, you know, either procure or implement or configure and so on. It's the human element that always ends up making it successful or not. And I think that's where season two really went and is going now. Like we know it's about people. Now it's less about random passions that might be able to come in. Now it's about how are these people using the technology in in combination to be successful for securing the environment. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get your start and what led you to where you are today? 
I feel like if you go back through season one, you'll find out what all of my random jobs were as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so so I worked at Starbucks at one point, so coffee is a big passion. Um, I went undergrad in archaeology, so that was an episode. Um, specialized in human remains. And then when I started to go through grad school, I found out there just was not a really large market for archaeologists out there. And also once I started doing the work, I was like, wow, this is not Indiana Jones or Laura Croft at all. It's living in a hotel room and you have a very small brush (laughs) and a trowel. So I started to look for different programs for my master's to move into that would be more security job, like to have one and to get paid Mm. and be able to pay off my student loans. And at the time, digital forensics had just come out. And I specialized, like I said, in human remains, which was forensic anthropology. So it wasn't a far jump for me to say, well, what's this digital forensics? You're using the word forensics. And the word forensics comes from Latin, you know, afarensis before the, the people and having to prove a case. So I was intrigued. I went and talked to them and switched over to digital forensics and the first semester into it, I got recruited from guidance software for NKs, and it just went from there. And then it was government and um, Fortune 50s managing security stuff. And I think after a while, I decided I had a voice that I thought could be helpful. And I think that's really what I think the podcast is about. Like, I think that we have something here we can say that we think will be helpful, and it is founded in the same curiosity today that I had 20 years ago. Well, as you say, season two is uh, about to kick off here. Can you give us a preview of some of the things we can look forward to? I will. I'll say that the first episode that's coming out is this great conversation with Perry Carpenter. And I'm sure a lot of people already know Perry Carpenter. He's very well known. But he is the host of the Eighth Layer Insights podcast. And he's an author, security researcher, all of these different things. And he's also behavioral science. And that is his enthusiasm. So love it. This is the area that I was, I read the book and I was like, oh my gosh, this gentleman is just as emphatic about humans being the strongest link as I am, but in a very fresh way. And so we came to it there um, with Marcin Srati, who's my director of global security and IT, and he's um, in Poland. And we chat about just effective training, technology, and support that can get everyone invested in how they'll protect your organization. So how will those things all come together? And I always like go back to 300, which is like one of my favorite movies, which is tragic. I literally named my firstborn child Leonidas. <laughs> I get it. I know. It's that bad. Oh, my. <laughs> but I love the I know. But I love the idea of like how they were able to hold off. So 30,000, a million, however many troops that were coming into the hot gates and it was just 300 men. How were they able to do that was because they had trust in the person to their left and right was just as strong and cared just as much as they did. And that is how I think cybersecurity needs to be. We are holding off millions of threats every day. You have to trust the person to your left and right, and not just because they're on the security team. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that uh, in this world that cybersecurity people inhabit, where there's so many ones and zeros, and the you know the the alarms are always going off, that there's a real hunger for these um, these stories of human connection and and being able to uh, tap into that side of things. So I I really think you're onto something here. I hope so. I do think that there is um, always a technical aspect to each episode, as there should be. We'll never get away from the tech, but how we're implementing that tech to become something that's much more merged with humans. Um, I mean, honestly, that's where we go in the direction when we talk about AI, right? 
this is exactly why that'll be one of the other topics that we tackle about, like, what is the real role of AI in the future in cyber? We know that automation and machine learning is happening in the cyber realm with adversaries. How are we fighting that battle and what would be the future for that? Well, the podcast is titled Security Sandbox, and it's hosted by Amanda Fennell. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He is the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at OpenText. David, always great to have you back on the show. Uh, I am really looking forward to checking in with you because I want to get your take on what the heck you think about this new thing coming down the pike. I've heard it mentioned. It's called the Metaverse. Yes, the Metaverse. Well, it, it, it's a lot of things to a lot of people. So I think uh, we're, the, the good news is, David, we're in those early days where um, no one's exactly sure what it looks like. And the other good news is we have a template, I think, in how to do it 100% correctly. If we look back over the last 20 years on how well humanity has executed social media, <laughs> um, I think I think we can't lose with the metaverse. Well, sure, and, and the pedigree <laughs> of the company that's leading it, right? It's been completely flawless. That's <laughs> It's exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a friendly, open place where everyone gets along and there's, right. you know, no trolls or anything no, like that. No, it's going to be Skittles and rainbows the whole way. Um, <laughs> exactly. So what are your concerns coming into this sort of new thing from a security point of view? Yeah. So first of all, we do need to articulate there's a handful of, of key things appearing. You know, there's VR. So you say metaverse, some people think of virtual reality. You say metaverse, some people think of gaming environments where they can go in and socialize. Uh, some people think of these new platforms where they're going in and buying land and it's tied to cryptocurrencies that, uh, you know, and blockchain. And I think we're going to see some amalgamation of all of that. And so the beauty is for our good friends, the cyber criminals, David, is there's going to be a litany of places they'll be able to steal from, hack into, and things of that nature. And and no one's going to listen to you and I, but let's just say it today, we really need to take a security first perspective on how we approach this. Because there's going to be a lot of transactions, a lot of money that's going on in this in the next five to 10 years. And, and we need to secure it now because it's easier than retrofitting later. Well, speak for yourself, but um, I think that – I wonder <laughs> if, um, you know, the lessons that we have learned from social media are going to be applied here. Can we be so optimistic as to say that any of those lessons are going to be learned and, and this next wave of online uh, interaction will come with more security baked in? To be completely forthright, of course, there's going to be things where we see better, you know, protection for children, where we see better uh, security around uh, transactions. But, but you know, one of the biggest money makers in cryptocurrency right now is stealing people's crypto wallets, mm. right? It's not actually making money on the currency. So there's a lot of that that we have to pay attention to now. And, you know, it's kind of tongue in cheek to say how rough social media has been. I do think we will go into this with um, some eyes wide open on, on how to proceed. And, and the hope is some, some good 
thought is put into how to proceed, not government regulation. You know, I'm not I'm not advocating for that, but where people really try to do the right thing up front and, and facilitate this uh, moving forward from both a socially acceptable perspective and security perspective. Do you have your uh, goggles ready or are you uh, ready to be an early adopter here? So joking aside, uh, several months back, I put on a kid's, uh, a friend of mine, I have a couple boys and one of their friends had a VR headset. I put it on and I literally went out and bought one that night. It really, yes, the VR component to this is mind blowing and the potential there. Uh, you know, all the drawbacks to using, you know, I don't, I don't want to say Zoom, but not Zoom itself, but all the, the Zooms, the go-to-meetings, the Teams, all of those products, uh, using the communication products we use today uh, virtually, when you put on a headset and it's three-dimensional and you can look around and, and in five years, David, you and I can say, hey, let's meet in Central Park on the bench uh, at, at this crossroads and we can both put on our headsets and do that. That's going to be like huge. And the ability to whiteboard and do things you would do in an office, it, it, it's a big deal. And and it's it's the early days. There's a lot coming. And I, I really think this will be the next wave, not, not just from a, you know, post pictures of your kitties, uh, you know, in virtual reality. But I do think yeah. there's there's a lot to this coming. All right. Well, David DeFore, bullish on the metaverse. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great to be here, David. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.